Um, but we love free stuff. People love free stuff. Who doesn't? That's why when there's something free, it's not like, you know, lower caps and little letters. It's free, all caps, exclamation point, because people are going to be like, yes, I need the free stuff. And we just love free things, free refills, free quotes, buy, get, buy one, get one free, uh, get this thing free with any purchase. And we use the word free in lots of ways. Are you free this weekend? Uh, Debt-free, cancer-free, GMO-free, interest-free, uh, care-free, gluten-free, dairy-free, caffeine-free, fat-free. We love the word free. It's like speak something to us. And in most of our uses, free means the absence of something that if it's caffeine-free, there's no caffeine. If it's GMO-free, there's no GMOs. If you don't know what that is, that's okay. Um, we can also teach you about that. Uh, no debt, no cancer, no gluten, no, you know, if I'm free this week and I have no plans, no responsibilities, no obligations, uh, no costs, no worries or cares. And so freedom is often defined as the absence of something. And freedom is one of, if not the primary value that our culture is built on. It's right there in uh, the Constitution of we, why did we exist? There's like, we wanted freedom of religion. Sorry, Andy. Uh, <laughs> Andy's from the UK. But you can plug your ears if you want. Like uh, we wanted freedom of religion, but then we brought in some other things with that. Freedom of speech, having certain rights that you can have, uh, you have the right to bear arms, which I think that's something about, like, you get to wear cut-off shirts, so you have bare arms. No. Uh, you have the, sorry, you have the, you're free to have, you know, a gun. If you want a gun, no one's going to take that from me. This is America kind of thing. And we have the right to vote. We're free to vote and, and so on. But what does you know, freedom mean? What do we mean by freedom? And as I said, we often mean it's the absence of something. To be free uh, for our culture is to have no constraints or limits or barriers. And often you might hear the, it's um, said like this, I can do whatever I want without constraint as long as it doesn't hurt someone else. Freedom of choice without limits, without constraints, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. That's kind of the moral it's like the main you know, good, the ultimate good is freedom. And then the thing that kind of like puts a governor on that is as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. It's like you can do whatever you want. And the fewer, we believe the fewer limits or boundaries we have on our desires, choices, and actions, then the more free that we are. And freedom for sure is a good thing, but it wasn't America's idea, the United States' idea for freedom. And we're entering the, in this series. We're going to do eight weeks in the book of Exodus. And the title of, is it, of this series is Redeemed for God. And redeem might be like a word where you're like, well, we hear that all the time, you know, redeem my coupon or um, I'm going to redeem something. I think you do this. If you have like a debt collector, take your stuff, you can maybe redeem it. I might have just made that up. But redeem, we have this idea uh, today, but in the Bible terms, redeem has to do with freedom. That if you were a slave in Bible times, you get redeemed by somebody paying the ransom price to get you out of slavery and for you to be free of slavery to that person, and now you've been redeemed. And so in this book, redeemed is the first word in the Bible, or the first book of the Bible, the first time that the word redemption is used in the Bible in, is in the book of Exodus, and the first time the word salvation is used is in the book of Exodus. And so this is a big theme of it, of <coughs> God stepping in to redeem people who are in slavery. But it's also not just redemption from something, but redemption for something, that we're redeemed for God. So we're going to do this in eight weeks through the book of Exodus. So it's a lot of chapters, so we're not going to cover every single word in there. And it's the second book in the Bible, and the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah uh, in Hebrew. 
um, often gets translated as law, but uh, of course Exodus has more than just laws. It has narratives and stories, uh, and there's poems. So it's not just, you know, do this, do that, uh, or don't do this, don't do that. There's also uh, stories. And so the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah, which really means um, instruction. And the reason these books were put together, we, um, it, it seems that a guy named Moses is who authored them. There's maybe some additions later on because like he, it, said, it talks about the day Moses died. Hard for Moses to write about the day he died. So there's some things that come in later on. But basically the Torah is given to the people of Israel to be their instruction about who God is and who they are and where we've come from. What's our origin as people? And what's wrong with the world? How did it all go wrong? And what is the solution to it? And so it speaks to these very uh, foundational things to the people of Israel. And it's not just for them because uh, it also includes us. It's Israel's origin story, but it's also the origin story for all of humanity because where it starts, Genesis, and then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are the five books. Uh, Genesis starts with the creation of the universe and then the creation of the first people and then what how their choices now affect us now, however many thousands of years later, that that, so it is relevant for all of us, telling us where we come from, who are we, what's wrong, what's the solution, uh, where is everything going, why am I here, what's my purpose? And basically Israel, the way they would have understood themselves is that God is using us to bring blessing back to a cursed world. God is using us, how Israel would have seen their origin story, what it tells them about themselves, is God is using us to bring blessing back to a cursed world. And we'll get into that uh, a little bit later. But this story, the book of Exodus, is about the Exodus. It's about an event, the primary event that shaped who Israel is, who, how they're supposed to think about themselves, how they're supposed to view God and know their identity. And it's a story about freedom. So that the people who experienced it, they experienced the exodus firsthand. But then Israel, as they look back hundreds or thousands of years later, it's like, who are we as a people? That's the defining story for us, is that we were a people in slavery, and that we were freed by God. And that's how we understood themselves. And these events recorded in the book of Exodus happened around 1200 or 1500 B.C., so like over 3,000 years ago, which I think is cool. Like we, this, These books that we open called Bibles might feel like, oh, this is just, kind of, you know, instructions for life. But it's like we're literally reading stories from 3,000 years ago. How many stories from 3,000 years ago have you read <laughs> uh, and that we just have on our shelf that we can read? And then not just that we read it, but that it has meaning to us, that it actually impacts us. It's telling where did everything begin and how did it get off course and how is it getting back on course. And so our Exodus starts. We're going to do chapters 1 and 2 today. Like I said, we won't be able to do, like, every single word uh, or every single verse ex- uh, explaining the whole thing. Uh, but where it starts off is uh, telling us about a family. So Exodus chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 7. It's on page 45, if you're using one of the black Bibles. So Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And if you're just starting in Exodus, you're like, 
okay, why do I care about this list of people? Who cares about the sons of Jacob coming down in Egypt? Who cares about Joseph dying? Well, if we had been reading uh, Genesis, we'd have learned the book right before, we'd have learned about all these people. And we did a series, uh, must have been a couple years ago now, going through Genesis a lot more um, thoroughly than we're going to go through Exodus. And so if you want to kind of look back and get the lay of the land through Genesis, look it on, on our website, um, church's website. But this family... In Genesis 1 to 2, I'll just give you a little recap of Genesis. Genesis 1 to 2, we see God create a world, and it shows us how life is meant to be. That God creates a world for us to live in with him. Basically, it's a home for us and God, and he's provided everything for us. He said, this is all here for you. And actually, we get this cool image in, uh, later in Genesis of God is walking in the garden that he made for them, walking with the people. So this is how life is supposed to be. God's provided for us a loving home, but we're supposed to be in with him, and we're walking with him and talking to him and having a personal relationship with him. But then in Genesis 3, everything goes wrong. You might be like, well, Genesis 1 and 2, that sounds nice. Just walking with God and hanging out and everything's good. There's no sin. There's no curse on the world. There's no things being ruined. There's no injustice, no slavery. But Genesis 3 is now describes the world that we live in because what happens is the first humans, Adam and Eve, are approached by uh, a character in the Bible named Satan. It comes to them in the form of a serpent, in the form of a snake, and basically says, uh, gives them this temptation, temptation that life without God would be better for you. That this way that you think life is, like God's really holding out on you, and life would be better without him. That if you kind of chose your own path, if you decided what's good for you and what's bad for you on your own terms and don't let God tell you what to do, that this is a better course of life. And so what happened is Adam and Eve, the first humans, fell for that lie, that deception, and they walked away from God. And with it came not God's blessing on the world, his goodness and his life, but that brought a curse to our world and to us that now life is not how it's supposed to be. The existence that we have now as people on planet Earth is not how God designed it to be. This was not how he meant it to go. We live a cursed existence. But then in Genesis 12, so that's Genesis 1 and 2, and then chapter 3. In Genesis 12, God launches a plan to bring blessing back to the world, to undo the curse. And he talks to a guy named Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm choosing you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you have this great family. Uh, It's going to be big. And I'm going to use you to bring blessing back to my world. That He's kind of like you know, the spigot that's opening up water and pouring blessing back in. He's the channel that God wants to use. I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to bless you and then bless the world through you. And some, a good way to think of that is he's blessed to be a blessing. And God's going to heal the world. He's going to make himself known through Abraham. And basically God is going to continue acting like himself by blessing Abraham. And that's going to reveal this is what God's really like, that he's not holding out on us, that he does really love us, that he's not uh, turning away from us. He wants what is best for us. And then Abraham's family grows, and they become a great nation. Uh, well, actually, we see that they set become 70 people, um, and they grow. And then it ends with there's Abraham, and then he has a son named Isaac, and then Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob, we see in Exodus 1, that Jacob then goes... Uh, Eventually, him and his family end up in Egypt. There's about 70 of them. And how they end up there is that one of his sons, one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, gets sold into slavery and he, by his brothers, gets taken down to Egypt. By the way, if you think your family's bad, 
uh, you should read about this family. It's pretty terrible to sell your your brother and to human traffic him. Um, so they goes down into Egypt, and then Joseph is basically like, well, I guess this is my life now, apart from my family. I'm a slave. But God keeps blessing him, and he eventually moves up, up, and up into the, in the ranks of Egypt, and he helps Egypt survive a huge famine. And this famine spreads all the way back up to the land of Israel, uh, where Jacob and his other sons are sitting there about to die of starvation. They say they hear, oh, there's food down in Egypt, and people are going down, and they're giving out the food. And so they come on down, and eventually they discover Joseph is here. He's alive. He's the one managing this plan to give out food. And then Joseph says, bring dad down, bring all the family down, and they all come down to Egypt so they can survive this famine. And so that's how this family ends up in Egypt. And that's where Genesis ended, with all of them in Egypt. But then eventually, that whole generation dies. Jacob and his sons, you know, Joseph, all the ones we just read about, uh, eventually they just, they all die. Verse 6, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. Which brings us to verses 8 through 22, where this is basically 400 years later. We learn later in Exodus that after Jacob dies and Joseph dies and all his brothers, they're about 400 years before of being in slavery as a family because I'm just going to summarize what happens in verses 8 through 22. A Pharaoh, so Pharaoh is the one who put Joseph in charge. He's like, I love Joseph. You're going to be in charge. Bring your family down and provide for him. But eventually that Pharaoh dies and there's a new Pharaoh that comes and Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't know what a blessing these Hebrew people, Abraham's family, uh, these Israelites have been to Egypt. But all he sees is these people are living here and they're multiplying, and they're getting bigger, and he sees a threat. It's that we're told he's scared of them. He's like, well, these people just keep getting bigger and keep flourishing. Like, eventually they might rise up with other people that want us to be out of power, and they might, you know, take over Egypt from us. And so he decides, you know what? A good way to take care of this is I'm going to enslave them. He's, I'm going to make slaves of them. And then he also says, uh, also midwives, while you are helping the Hebrew women give birth, I don't want you to let any male kids live. I want, when you're helping them give birth, let girls live. If it's a boy, throw them into the Nile River. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, giving birth to a baby boy, and then the midwife just walks over to the river and throws the baby in. Like, this is a terrible person. He plans to enslave them, and he plans to murder them to have full-term abortions after the baby's, you know, out of the womb. And like, I'm just going to get rid of these people. I'm going to keep them down. I'm going to press them, keep them low. We're told in verses 17 through 22, that doesn't totally happen. The midwives were told, fear God. And they're like, we're not going to follow this order from Pharaoh. And so they were letting the baby boys live. And Pharaoh's like, what are you doing? Like, let, like you're messing it up. And they're like, well, they give, they're very vigorous. They give birth really fast before we can get there. And so we don't even have a chance. It's like, okay, like, I guess Pharaoh kind of bought that. Um, but so God deals well with them. And he gave them families because they feared God. And then we hear again in verse 20 that they're multiplying they're growing strong. And so it's kind of like, no matter what's happening, God is blessing this family, and they're having these things happen to them. And then we read in verses 2, 1 through 10, about the birth of Moses. You might be like, well, who's Moses? I'm sure most of you at least know that name. But Moses is eventually going to be the person that leads them out of slavery. And the, Moses is born just like all these other kids, and the, his mom is afraid that he's also going to have something happen to him because of Pharaoh's... Uh, policy on baby boys and so she makes this little basket for him and she puts him in the river you're supposed to throw the baby boys in the river but she makes a basket and puts him in the basket in the river and he floats down the river and then Pharaoh's daughter 
sees this basket, has her servant check it out, says, oh man, I'm going to take this baby as my own. And then she says, go call, you know, uh, or Moses' sister was following him along the river. She's like, you want me to find a, a Hebrew to nurse him? And she's like, sure. So then Moses' sister goes back to Moses' mom and brings the mom back. And so she kind of like nurses Moses. And then eventually he's raised in the Egyptian palace, Moses is. And one thing that's you know, just unique about how God works is that God loves using evil against himself, against itself. So what happens here, the boy who is saved, Moses, by Pharaoh's daughter, from being killed by Pharaoh, becomes the one who saves his people from Pharaoh. It's very ironic that the boy that's going to be Pharaoh's undoing is taken in and raised and protected by his family. Well, Moses grows up, <laughs> verses 11 through 22, Moses grows up in the palace, you know, being an Egyptian. He looks like an Egyptian. Uh, he goes out and he's just kind of looking at the Hebrews working. They're in slavery. They're doing these building projects. And he sees an Egyptian beating up on a Hebrew. And he intervenes and he kills the Egyptian. Maybe he was planning to, maybe it was an accident. And then he's like, oh, geez, what am I going to do now? So he buries the Egyptian in the sand. Next day, comes out, and he sees two Hebrews fighting with each other. And he says, hey, like, why, why are you fighting with each other? And the one guy is like, well, what, what are you going to do? You're going to do it to us like you did to the Egyptian? You're going to kill us and bury us in the sand? And then Moses realizes, like, oh, no, like, people know what I did. And word gets to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh wants to kill him. And so Moses flees into the wilderness. And I'm just going to read this section where he flees, verses 16 through uh, so this is now in Exodus chapter 2, verses 16 through 22. Now the sister of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian, notice they don't even recognize him as a Hebrew or an Israelite, looks like an Egyptian, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses' daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses is a Hebrew. He gets raised in the Egyptian palace and becomes basically Egyptian, that, that's what he looks like, shaved head and all that would go with that. Um, but then he has to flee Egypt, and now he's in Midian, and living with the shepherd and his family, marries her daughter. And so, well, who is Moses? Is he a Hebrew? Is he an Egyptian? Is he a Midian now? Where does he belong? What's his purpose? Is he supposed to be an Egyptian enforcing Egyptian imperial policy? Is he supposed to be a Hebrew fighting injustice against his people? Is he supposed to be a shepherd of Midian, shepherding a flock of sheep? And I think some of this is going to come out in our next our message next week of where he, he's not necessarily asking, like, well, who am I, God? I don't, but he says to God, well, who am I to lead these people? I think he has a, a sense of, like, I don't really know where I belong. How do you want me to lead these people? But what do we learn about Moses? We learn that he has a strong sense of justice. He steps in to stop an Egyptian from beating up on a Hebrew. And then he steps into a conflict with two Hebrews and says, hey guys, don't be beating up on each other. And then he saves this shepherd girl who's trying to water the sheep and he delivers her. It actually says he delivers her them or saves them. And Moses has a strong sense of justice. He takes action to save and deliver, which is what God's going to ask him to do. But then we see, this is kind of all the story. It's like, that's backstory. 
get to Moses. And now we hear, we're going to start getting into what's about to happen. Verses 23 through 25 set us up for what God's going to do. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And so you see that this backstory is getting set up, that we're the people that God wants to bless to be a blessing are in slavery. They're being, uh, the babies are being killed, or at least attempted to be killed. And now God, they're crying out, they're groaning, and God hears it, and he sees them, and he knows. This is a God who hears his people's cries and groaning who sees his people and knows his people's suffering, pain, and affliction. And it says he remembered his covenant uh, with Abraham. So that would be, uh, you know, uh, Moses, like great, 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 great grandfather back 400 years. He's like, I'm remembering my covenant. It's not like God was like, you know, taking a snooze on the couch. And all of a sudden he's like, <gasps> I left the burner on, on the stove. And he's not like laying on the couch and be like, oh, my covenant, I need to put these poor people. I forgot about them for 400 years. No. When God remembers something, it means I'm about to take action uh, rooted in this promise that I've made to them in the past. And so God keeps his promises. And it's because of who he is. He's like, like, I don't, it's not like, okay, it's gotten bad enough. Now I can act on your behalf. It's like, no, God acts because he's promised to act because that's what he's going to do. So why the Exodus story? Why is it important to us? Well, we've already seen couple things that were introduced to. One is the problem, which is slavery. Things are not how they're supposed to be. And then we're going to see the solution. Uh, spoiler alert, Israel gets released from slavery, so that's coming. Uh, they're going to get freedom. They're going to get redemption from slavery. There's going to be an exodus out of Egypt. That's what that word, the exodus, because they exodus out of Egypt. We might ask, well, what, okay, what does this have to do with us? <laughs> Why do these events that happen to a people over 3,000 years ago, why would that matter to any of us? Well, it's not one good way to think about the Old Testament, um, where people of the New Testament, the, which is after Jesus has come, the Old Testament is before Jesus came. And one way to think about the Old Testament is that it wasn't written to us, but it was written for us, for our benefit. It's be something that we can look at and learn. It also prepares us. The, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing about all of Scripture, he says it's all God-breathed, and at that point, they don't have a New Testament all bound up in a nice book. They're writing letters, and later that gets put into a book. When he's looking at the Old Testament, he says, it's all breathed out by God, and it's useful for teaching and correcting. And what it actually, one of the big things the Old Testament does is it makes us, he says, wise for salvation, in that when we read it, it prepares us to see Jesus for who he is, that now I do need to be saved. And then Jesus comes, and it's like, yes, he's the answer to everything, every issue, every theme the Old Testament brought up. And it, what God does for Israel, he will do for the whole world, an exodus, a freeing. And we see just these three things that, ha- that we see. We see the slavery, we see that God knows, we see God is going to act to free them. And slavery is not just an Israel problem or, you know, early America problem, but it's a universal problem human problem, that there is an original enslaver, and we already talked about him, in the garden, in Genesis 3, this serpent comes to Adam and Eve, the first humans, and 
leads them into slavery with a lie. God doesn't really love you. Wouldn't it be better if you decided what's good for you and what's bad for you on your own? You know what's best for you, and so God's holding out. So just walk away from him. You're going to have a better life apart from him. And leaving God's love left us in slavery, working tirelessly to find a love that can replace his love, just this treadmill of working, this restlessness of like, and if you think about what it's like to be a slave, it's like, well, you guys, we need you to build this stuff, <laughs> and we don't really care about your rights or how you're feeling. You just need to work tirelessly after that. And what the original slavery is working tirelessly to find love, to be loved, to be fulfilled, to find identity and belonging and purpose. And that's what we were led into. You have to keep working for the love or else you lose it. And that's the original slavery, a spiritual, relational slavery apart from God. And the, how the Bible talks about our state of existence apart from God is slavery. And it produces all the problems we see in the world. Like physical slavery is why, because we walked away from God, all the suffering and all the brokenness in our world, it's all from us walking away from God. And so we can ask, why are things not how it's supposed to be? It's because we walked away from God and it brought all these issues into the world, into our lives. But God promised, even in Genesis 3, he said, one day there's going to be someone who's going to come and he's going to crush the head of that snake that led you into this. At the same time, the snake is going to bite him and give this mortal wound. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But later in Israel's history, there was prophets that saw Israel really still isn't free. We still aren't free. <laughs> We're not living free of this original curse that got brought in our world, this original brokenness. And so they started talking about there's going to be a day when God's going to bring a king and this king is going to lead us in a new exodus. I know we had the exodus from Egypt, but we're still not free and God's going to lead us in this new exodus and our hearts are going to get changed. We're going to be forgiven of all the ways we disobey God, all the ways that we don't do what God commands and that we do what God forbids. We're going to be forgiven of it and we're going to be given new hearts and there's this anticipation that there's going to be someone who's going to bring us in a new exodus. And then came Jesus. And his inaugural sermon uh, in Luke chapter 4, he says what he's come to do. And he's saying, I've come to set people free. I've come to set the captives free, to set people at liberty, to deal with the oppressors. And so Jesus is saying, you know, inaugural sermon is like, what's this, um, what's the word for a presidential, not reign, what's the, what's the word for when a president is in office? Term, that's it, just the the. This term of me doing this, what's going to be happening while I'm in charge is I'm setting people free. That's his inaugural speech. And Jesus talks to people like they're slaves, working themselves to death. Matthew 11, you're, all you people who are heavy and weary laden, if that's you, if you feel like you're a slave just working yourself to death to figure out life in this world, then come to me. I want to take that off your back and I want to give you uh, freedom from it. And Jesus is like, aren't you tired of living like this? Aren't you exhausted from trying to fix yourselves? From trying to be good enough for God's love? That's just not how it's supposed to be. He invites them to something more. And Jesus actually says, not just I'm leading you out of slavery, but I'm actually paying the price for your redemption. Remember, ransom price needs to be paid to redeem someone out of slavery. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm paying it. And then his followers who wrote about him and are encouraging the churches and are spreading the news about him, they talk about people being sl slaves who can now be set free by Jesus and brought back to God. 
And so the Exodus story is all ultimately about Jesus. When he has a little Bible study with his followers in Luke 24, he dies, and then he's resurrected, and he has his Bible study with his original disciples. And he says, I mean, look back at the Old Testament. It's all about me. Moses, what Moses wrote, the, the Torah, the law, the prophets, what they're talking about, this new Exodus, and the Psalms that talk about this king that's going to be coming. That was all about me, I'm, and I'm fulfilling all of them. And really, really what we see is Jesus is the true and better Moses. Where Moses fails, Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't kill <laughs> Egyptians and bury them in the sand. Uh, where Moses fails, Jesus, uh, Jesus is better. And where Moses succeeds, Jesus is better. He's the ultimate liberator, the ultimate rescuer, the ultimate redeemer. And this story, Exodus, is ultimately about Jesus. And the Bible is ultimately a story about Jesus and about the freedom that he brings. And not just freedom from, but freedom for God's love and loving God. And Jesus said at his first coming, I'm paying the price of the freedom, and we can live in that now. But when he comes again, he says, I'm going to come back again. I'm going to fully liberate this entire world from this curse, this brokenness, from the sin, and from Satan, and from death. That serpent, he came, and he, he crushed the head, but he took the blow that also killed him, paying the price for our freedom. But when he comes back, not going to be any more blows he takes. He's going to come to set the world free and to make it new, where he's going to make it all right. He's going to make the world how it's supposed to be. And so I want, I wonder if you've ever said to yourself, I wish Jesus would come back. I'm, I can't do this anymore. It's too painful. Katie and I asked her if it was okay to share this, um, to just give a couple instances where we have expressed that wish. Um, we've been trying to get pregnant for eight years, um, unable to. So we decided to adopt, which felt like the right decision. And our first match for adoption fell through. And it's like, God, you put this desire in us to have kids. Why can't we have them? And then you put this desire in us to adopt, and now that has become painful and hurtful. And I have, I'm sure you and I have relations in my life that it's just, they're painful relationships where you just want it to be different and you don't think it ever will be. And so I've had times when I've just said, I don't want to do it anymore. It's too hard. It's too painful. Jesus, would you come back? And would you change this? Would you make it right? So we don't have to live in it anymore. Can't you come back and make it all better? And by the way, that's a biblical prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Because this world is not how it's supposed to be. It is cursed. It's broken. It's painful. And I've felt it personally. And we can pray that Jesus, would you come back? In a world that's not how it's supposed to be, we long for someone like Jesus who hears our cries, who sees our pain, who knows what it's like to be us. He's been there. He was crucified for following God. He knows what it's like to be us, and he's done something about it, and he's doing something about it, and he will do everything about it. We want someone like Jesus who will fight for us, who stand up for us. And I don't know if, I hope this doesn't bring up traumatic memories, but I, if you've ever experienced bullying um, in school or anywhere, um, I remember one particular instance where I don't know why a, kid, a bigger guy that was four years older than me pulled me, we're waiting for the bus, and he pulls, pulled me aside and put me against this wall, kind of hidden behind some stuff. 
And I don't remember exactly what he wanted from me, if it was money or some, some treat, I don't know what it was. Like, what do you got in your backpack? Um, and I don't exactly remember everything I felt. I think it was just like, oh my gosh, like this thing is happening to me that I like seen in the movies or that people talk about. And then one of his classmates came up and said something to him, like, what are you doing? And said, get, you know, leave him alone. And that feeling that we might get in this world of like being bullied, being not, you know, not necessarily like high school bullying, but just bullied by the world and Satan and sin and the curse of being up against the wall and being like, I don't know what to do. We want someone like Jesus to step in when our back is against the wall that says, no, <laughs> you can't bully them. They're mine and I'm taking care of them. He stands up for us. He takes action against bullies, persecutors, oppressors. And he will say, enough is enough. He won't stand for it forever. We long for somebody like Jesus who fights for us, who fights for our hearts. And doesn't that make you just like him (laughs) and want to be like him? Jesus is this combination of the most fierce person and the most concerned person about justice you'll ever meet at the same time the most tender person you'll ever meet. He's both the lion and he's both the lamb. And he's a lion who defends and protects his people and leads us out of slavery. And he's the lamb who died for his people, who feels tender towards our pain and suffering. And he'll free us from sin, sickness, death, injustice, and suffering. He'll lead us out of not how it's supposed to be, back into what it was meant to be. He's our redeemer, savior, rescuer, deliverer. And those who are poor in spirit, he'll welcome. Those who are mourning, he'll comfort. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for things to be made right in this world, they will be satisfied by him because he's going to make all things new. And we're actually told at the very end of the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible, that when we see Jesus again, when he's making this world new, that he's actually going to wipe the tears from our eyes. Perhaps those are tears that could be of regret or remorse or just of like, it's been so hard. I'm so glad you're here. He's going to wipe the tears from us. And that gives us a hope that can never be taken away. And that's freedom. Not attached to this world, attached to him. So free from basing our hope on what this world gives to us. And Jesus' invitation is come. Let me show you how life is meant to be. Let me show you what you are made for. Let me lead you out of this. There's hope for you. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are just, you see, and you hear all that is happening in our world, all that's happened to us, all that's been done to us. You see it and you know, you have compassion and tenderness. And Lord, we just want to learn to pray, come Lord Jesus, that we want to be liberated from what's happened to this world, what's happened to us. So God, would you make us a people who live free? In your son's name we pray. Amen.